Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Robert J. Myers. He is the author of the book, Get Your Loved One Sober, Alternatives to Nagging, Pleading, and Threatening. And he's an expert in helping the people who cares deeply about someone who uses alcohol or drugs, like a spouse or a mother or a sibling. And so he's kind of dedicated his career to training people like that in how to to help their loved one to find something new. And he is a professor emeritus in psychology from the University of New Mexico. And he is the author of the Robert Myers PhD Institute. Even though he's retired as a professor, he still does 15 to 20 workshops a year all over the world, training people to train these caregivers. So we are so excited to get this true expert on the show today to talk about how parents of teenagers who are using a drug or are drinking, how can parents help teenagers to change that behavior, to help them, you know, find more positive friends and more positive activities that don't involve the drug. And so can't wait to get into this really, really important topic. I read this book, Get Your Loved One Sober, Alternatives to Nagging, Pleading, and Threatening. And a lot of this stuff in here I thought was brilliant and is so in line with what we teach about parenting teenagers because it leaves the other person autonomous but still kind of steers them in a different direction. And uh, it's so cool. And I wonder how you came up with this craft system that you have in here and what inspired you to do all of that. Well, the reason I invented craft was um, when I originally started doing therapy in 1976, I was trained in the community reinforcement approach with craft is part of that. The CRA beginning comes from the alcohol uh, program, the original one that's called community reinforcement approach. And so I added FT at the end, family therapy. And how I got there is I was doing uh, therapy with couples Back then, we called it marital therapy. Now, it's just partner therapy. And when we were doing it back in the 70s, I I realized that some of the spouses of the drinkers, typically it was drinkers at that time coming in. So I saw that the spouses still had some some part of their relationship that they could still um, maneuver a little bit and um, Mm. uh, had a supportive effect on the drinker. So I was thinking, I wonder if we could get the spouses in more frequently so we could talk to them and teach them some different skills. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the original part of this really came from, uh, I grew up in a in an alcohol abusing home. My father was a, a heavy drinker, and he would be gone a lot and wouldn't come home sometimes. And so my mother, I always watched her sitting in this chair, you know, crying and being sad and mm. many, many years with that. And uh, when 
Uh, I got into school. Um, I was getting a bachelor's in social work with my first degree, and uh, you have to do practicums. And I found someone that uh, was looking for folks to work at the, an Anna State Hospital in Southern Illinois, okay. uh, which was part of or people there also worked at the, the university where I went to school, Southern Illinois University. And that's where I met Dr. Nate Azarin, who taught me how to do the community reinforcement approach with his group. I see. So I went down to do my practicum, and believe it or not, before I even finished my practicum, I was asked to apply for a job um, (laughs) in the addiction field, and I did. I was a little older because I had been in uh, the military. I'm a Vietnam veteran. Right, right. And um, actually uh, a disabled one, uh, at least according to the VA, because of PTSD and stuff. But the whole thing about it was when I came home from the service and I saw my mother still having problems with my dad, and about two years later, at 45, my mother died. So when I saw this woman saying, "We let's go to this alcohol unit and you guys can do a practicum there, I jumped right on it. So again, I started working with the spouses in couple therapy, and I thought they would be great. And uh, we know as in psychology that women do better in therapy than men do. And I, I know that's the way we're raised and the way uh, men and <laughs> women uh, change. So I thought maybe we could get them in. So I started a program down in Southern Illinois, and it was called Concerned Persons Program. Okay. And so I started getting those females in, and they were all women um, at the beginning, and uh, working with them. And I saw some success right. in them having their husbands or their other partners, whatever it might be, changing their behaviors a little bit in the couple's counseling and trying to do things differently. So that's how I really got started doing craft. And when I moved to New Mexico to be closer to my brother and his family, uh, one of the first people I met was Dr. Bill Miller, who has developed motivational interviewing, and we've become very yeah. close friends over the last 30 years. Ah. And uh, so I started re- doing grants with Bill, writing grants with Bill, and we had several grants. Um, and then we started doing grants on craft and that's where the, the fun came in and is trying to see how many people we could get into the craft program and see how successful it would be. One of the, the key issues of craft for me is, is that we help the individual who comes into treatment to help somebody else in their family, their daughter, their son, right. uh, their husband, wife, whatever it may be. But when we look at our data over a period of a year, we see a, a gradual reduction in anger, and uh, a reduction in anxiety, a reduction in depression. Uh, and my favorite one is that we had a really big uh, reduction in uh, negative physical complications like migraine, headaches, upper and lower GI problems, um, and anxiety again. Interesting. Even after the, the first program we did, and we saw this, I was kind of shocked that we had such an impact on some of those psychosocial behaviors. Right. And uh, it was kind of a win-win situation because even the women who came in, and we got 65% of the women that came in, got their husband or their child into treatment and did quite well. Wow. But there was still a percent that didn't. Uh, but those women still had the same reduction in anxiety, depression, ah. anger, and and losing some of the physical problems that they had just by coming into the therapy and having somebody support them in a positive way. And we never we never called anybody an enabler. We never call anybody codependent because those are negative terms. Sure. So when someone comes into craft and we're really trying to help someone, 
I always say, let's not give them a label that might put them down or make them feel bad. Yeah. Because they didn't cause the problem. And most of these women were just trying to help their family members doing the best they can, not being a psychologist or, or some type of a social worker. You know, they're regular folks who had never dreamed that it would come to this. So try to help those individual people, just like my mother. And I knew if she was sitting there crying um, five nights out of seven, I imagine there's lots of other women around the world in the United States doing the same thing. And that's right. what we've seen in all of our studies, uh, studies done in Philadelphia, studies done in Oregon, studies done in Holland, studies done in different parts of the world where we do get uh, really good success using the, the craft model. Well, you know, it doesn't surprise me that it had such positive impacts on people's lives because it seems like it really gives you a sense of control and shows you areas where you really can make changes. And then it shows you how to map those out and then how to track your progress so that you can see that you really are having an impact, you know, incrementally. And I think all that stuff is really empowering and it's a cool method. So I wonder if we could break it down a little bit and specifically in the context of teenagers, because a lot of the examples in the book are like what you're saying, you know, a, a husband and wife kind of a situation. And I found myself trying to figure out, like, how would you do this with a teenager, you know? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Holly Waldron at the Oregon Research Institute um, and High Hops, who's the director, they did a craft study with strictly um, adolescents, kids mm. that were anywhere from 12, 14 years old, all the way up to 18 years old. And they got the same results that we got with Mostly, actually, the people who had the best job, when we look at all of the three studies we did here, and even incorporate some done in Philadelphia and, and other places uh, like Oregon, we really find that the, the mothers of adult children or teenagers that are still living at home or 25 years old that are acting like teenagers yeah, still living right. at home, they had the best success rate at engaging people to come into treatment, stay in the treatment. Yeah. So the Holly study was really nice because she got 71% of the individuals in the treatment. And on her study, only 49% of the households had two parents. So there was strictly a mother taking care of these kids. And the mothers are the ones who came in and the mothers are the ones who got those people in the treatment at 71% by going through a craft program. So that's, that's pretty earth shaking, I, I think, to me anyway, because most of us who work with adolescents quite a bit know that, <laughs> that a lot of times the adolescent runs the home, you know. Getting 71% of them to do anything is hard. Yeah, exactly. You can't even get them to make their bed, you know, right. or, you know, take out the garbage or something, let alone stop using marijuana or whatever whatever drug that they're abusing. Yeah. But when I first started, there was a couple of rationales that, that were really important to me. Um, so, okay. you know, substance abusers often report that family pressure prompted them to go to treatment. Right. So you've right. already got some idea that individuals have some influence over the drinker or the drug user. Another rationale for me for helping people is that families also need help from domestic violence, from verbal assault, from mm. uh, money problems from uh, marital conflict and different problems. And so having them get involved in treatment, whether it's a recovery coach or whether it's a PhD psychologist, I think if they follow the program that they'll really be able to start changing a little bit about how they deal with life and 
and and so on. Because one of the problems when uh, a CSO, the concerned significant other, comes into treatment, a lot of them feel it's their fault. They say, well, if I was a better mother or uh... if I was a better husband or better wife and on and on and on. And, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get them to understand that they didn't cause a problem. And just because they can't control this person who's using drugs and obviously out of control, um, it, it's not their fault. They're just doing the best job they, they can do. So we sure. really emphasize that and focus on, you know, self-care for the individual. So part of craft is teaching the family member how to take care of themselves, uh, how to um, get back in church maybe, uh, maybe uh, get back to a job or a part-time job or mm-hmm. uh, get involved in other things in the community that make them feel good, start seeing their friends and family again. Because a lot of women, when they have a son or a daughter or a husband who's doing horrible things, what happens is the family gets on them. They say, why don't you kick him out of the house? And why don't you this? And why don't you do tough love? So on and so forth. And uh, most people don't want to do that because they love their family, especially tough love. And, and yeah. you know, we know tough love doesn't work. I mean, there's, there's no way it works. So why do it? But they don't know that because they haven't been to a therapist or they haven't read a good book that, that right. talks about this. And right. so they're just doing the best they can. Craft really is there for family support. Uh, we focus on the family. We focus on the individual who comes into treatment first. Is usually right. the concerned significant other, what we call her. And by the way, I'm using female gender, uh, not because yeah, I'm a misogynist or not a misogynist or whatever, <laughs> but I'm not trying to, to, to put down men because our studies show that between 97% and 88% of the people who come into all of these studies I've seen around the world are female. So there's very few males that have been involved in these programs. And whether it's in Australia or it's in Ireland or it's in the United States, I get the same feedback from the folks that I've trained over the last 20 years. Yeah. uh, And and we see the same thing. This is why I think there's a lot of parallels with this and what we do with teenagers, because you have the, you know, highly motivated, caring, significant other. And we just see the same thing with these moms that are like so highly motivated to find something, something for their teenager. Uh, That's what makes it work, I think, uh, is just that, that huge motivation. But so a big part of your method is alternatives. That's kind of what you start out with in the first part of the book is explaining how you can provide alternative routes after there's the trigger that normally triggers use, you can somehow kind of map out uh, what the sequence of events is that leads to use and then provide alternatives. Um, so how, if you were a parent, how would you go about doing that? Well, first of all, when uh, folks come in and, uh, and we have had young people in some of the studies I've done and what we try to do with the CSO that has a 16, 17 year old that's smoking marijuana every day is yeah. to start off by trying to find something that he does well. Uh, some days when he does, he comes home and he's not been smoking and you mm. can't smell marijuana or see his eyes dilated or whatever it might be. Okay. And right. try to reward them for not doing it by just saying, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad you're home. I really love you. Let's, what would you like for dinner? I'll make you something special. And if they come home stoned and really messed up, instead of attacking him, I would suggest to the family member to say, well, I'm glad you're home safe. I'm glad you're here. I can see you've been out with your friends. 
So I, I guess I'll just probably go up and finish that book I was reading and I'll, I'll talk to you later on. So uh, being an operant conditioning guy, I kind of use those uh... principles of positive reinforcement and putting people on extinction, but I don't use those words typically with clients. But <laughs> right. what we're really trying to do is to get the, the family member to start looking back at what a wonderful child that is. And one of the ways we've decided to mm. do that is to ask them to bring in a scrapbook or a picture book of the, the child as they were, you know, baby pictures and so on and so on. And then when you hear the spouse start saying or the CSO start saying, oh, she was so cute when she was there. Oh, she was so good at this. And she was. <laughs> well, everything is past tense. And so I say, well, did you teach her how to ride a bicycle? And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, we taught her yeah. how to ride a bicycle. And did you teach her this, that, and the other? And, of course, the answer is yes. I said, well, this is just a, another problem. It's like a problem learning how to potty train your, your adolescent and so on or your, your child. But this program is set up to help you fix other problems or help work on other problems. So the, the cool thing is is that we help them, you know, learn how to do different things, approach the individual a different way, Try not to get angry. If you feel yourself getting angry, just walk away and say something like, you know, it hurts me when I see you like this and walk away as opposed, you're a horrible kid. What the hell are you doing? Why do you do this stuff? I told you a hundred times. And all that stuff does is push them away. So yeah. if you want to bring them back, you need to start finding positive stuff, talking about things that he used to do or she used to do. So here's the thing. I've been in the addiction uh -huh. field for about 42 years now. And what I've seen is that the American population is fairly good at getting people detoxed. Sure. But we can get them sober, but we can't keep them sober, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> my thing is, is that when somebody does go through a program and start diminishing the use of his alcohol or other drugs and gets to a place where they stop or they're using very, very little amounts of that, is get them involved in school get them in jobs and hobbies, get them involved in any kind right, of activity right. that they see as a fun, cool thing to do. See, my idea is if you can make your sober life more rewarding than your drinking life, then maybe they'll give up their drinking. Now, yeah, I don't yeah. lie to clients and say, look, you know, this is going to be way better than drinking. Drinking does nothing good for you because that's crap, because it does do something for them that they like. Well, they wouldn't keep doing it. There's a reason that you're doing it every day, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's a reason. So if we can get him to slow down and start doing things differently and talking to him at the right time and the right places, we could maybe get him to cut down all the way to zero and not be using anything at all. But in the meantime, we need to be helping him set up with things in the community, whether it's recreational or whether it's a hobby, or whether it's learning how to do a new skill. We have to get them involved in some things that are meaningful to them and away from the people that they're using dope with or using alcohol with. And right. the big key is, really to me, is to try to help them start getting back to or rearranging again their lifestyle, because it's a lifestyle change. And if you just say, okay, you're sober now, get out of here, good luck, you know, don't drink anymore. Well, that's not right. going to do much good. Right? No, of course not. You're going to go straight back to the same patterns of behavior that were driving use before. Absolutely. And, and that's what I tell folks. The number one reason for relapse, according to the literature, is negative emotional states. And the mm. biggest negative emotion I see a lot of times with teenagers is boredom. Yeah. I mean, how many totally. times have we heard from teenagers? There's nothing to do here. 
Right. You know? Right. And there is stuff to do wherever they are. I don't care if it's in Finland where I've been or if it's in Scandinavia or it's in, I've been to Africa. I've, I've been to Australia. I've been everywhere. All over 39 different states. I've done trainings in, in the United States, including Alaska sure. and Hawaii. And it's the same everywhere. All yeah. the t- teenagers say, oh, there's nothing to do here. And you and I know <laughs> the reason there's nothing to do here is because they're getting high. They're not looking to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so we got to try to figure out a way to entice them to do things a little bit differently and yeah, start yeah. just one thing at a time, you know, just a little bit at a time. Get them motivated a little bit to go out and find something to do, right? Yeah. Right. We're here with Robert J. Myers talking about his book, Get Your Loved One Sober, and strategies for getting teens off of drugs and alcohol. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Once we get her to the place where she's not judging him, where she's not, you know, confronting him, expressing disapproval, being derogatory, be insulting, be abusive, being bitchy to them, labeling them and lecturing to them, as soon as we can get that garbage out of the way, things go much, much better. But to me, the key is really is getting them active and getting them back on finding something that's more exciting. People don't give up their drugs or their alcohol for nothing. No. They have to get something in return. Right. right. In my other programs, I started something called sobriety sampling, and it's basically harm reduction. But, you know, you bring a kid in at 16 years old, and he's been smoking dope for two or three years, and he smokes every day, three times a day, and you tell him he can't smoke dope ever again, uh, he's not going to come back to see you, or he's just going to play games with you, and things aren't going right. to work. But if you say, okay, well, how much do you smoke? Well, I smoke every day. Okay, uh, let's, let's, let's try something different. Let's see if you can do it. And he goes, what? I, said, I wonder, this, this time Tuesday, maybe on Tuesday, instead of smoking three times a day, I wonder if you could just smoke two times a day, just on Tuesday, and see what happens. <laughs> Why? He said, well, I just want to see if you could do it. You think you go, oh, I could do whatever I want to do. Okay, great, try it. <laughs> so the idea is to get them to cut down maybe gradually over a period of time, as opposed to everything has to be done right now. America's black and white, you know. Either you're 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 good and you're straight and you're not using drugs or else you're a loser, you know. Uh, and that's horrible. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know he's smoking marijuana, you know he's doing this, you know he's doing that. So why do you keep hassling about it? Did that did that ever change anything? It doesn't change anything. So what you need to do is you need to kick back and find other ways to get to your son as a friend, as a human being, as a person. And he's got problems now, but again, they're different problems, but you still need to help them and not be judgmental and horrible to you. And listen, nobody likes to be hooked on heroin. Nobody likes to be hooked on cocaine. Nobody likes to be hooked on alcohol, but some of them are. And the only way to get them off of that is to show them that you care about them in a positive way, as opposed to you just need to get him to do it because you're afraid he's going to kill himself or something, which is a possibility, obviously, for all that, those types of drugs. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.